that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's stand together out of awe and respect for the God who has spoken through his son. John chapter 9 verse 13. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him, because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked, and they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we have come apart from the world this day to worship you. We have come apart to, to be in your presence for refreshing and blessing, but also for instruction, training, and righteousness. We pray, O oh God, that as you have appointed that Christ should be proclaimed through the preaching of the word, that you would bless that which we undertake. Lord, continue to abide with us, fill us with your spirit, both for the hearing, but also for the preaching of the word, that Christ would be all in all, and that he would be exalted and draw all men unto himself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've noticed for some years, and perhaps you have as well, that if you watch uh, situation comedies, TV dramas, you will notice that ministers and preachers are uh, portrayed as simple-minded, dumb buffoons, and sometimes just all right, outright sinister people. Well, there's nothing new. Um, some of you could be familiar with Charlotte Bronte, and she was the author of Jane Eyre. And she created a character in that story that some of you will be familiar with if you read the book or seen the movie. There's a Reverend Mr. Brocklehurst. He's the headmaster of an orphanage. Uh, it is, he's a pretty sinister figure. Um, Jane Eyre has an aunt. Jane is a, an orf- orphan, and and uh, his, her aunt intends to put her into the orphanage. So Mr. Mr. Brocklehurst is summoned, and he interviews this young girl, Jane, asking her if she is a good child. Jane hesitates, and the sinister Mr. Brocklehurst commands her to stand before him. He asks the child if she knows where the wicked go at their death. Jane knows the answer. They go to hell. The headmaster presses on, and what is hell? Can you tell me that? Jane replies, it's a pit full of fire. And the cruel minister presses Jane more. And you should not like to fall into that pit and be burned there forever. No, sir, Jane replies. What must you do to avoid it, he asks. It's at this point that Jane's 
run out of, runs out of answers, and she doesn't know what the correct answer is. And after some delay, she, she responds, I must keep in good health and not die. Charlotte Bronte took some heat for her portrayal of a minister, Mr. Brocklehurst, after her book came out. So in the second edition, in the preface, she explained that her intention was not to undermine the church, but to strengthen it. She intended to expose those falsely claiming to be Christians, particularly false ministers. She wrote, self-righteousness is not religion. Her desire was to pluck the mask off the face of the Pharisees. That's her words. Well, the apostle John's account in the aftermath of the healing of the blind man does just that. What we have even heard, the section we're in, we've seen how the mask is plucked off from the Pharisees and the reader discovers the characters that are, these men are. They are quite diabolical, uh, perhaps we would say even more so than Mr. Brocklehurst. What happens after the man is healed from his blindness will open our eyes to what blind unbelief looks like as it's portrayed in the Pharisees. We're going to use four main headings. Uh, unbelief, you twist the truth. Unbelief is cold-hearted. Unbelief is unwilling. And then we will look at belief under fire. So we begin with belief twists the truth. In John 13, we're told they brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now perhaps you're asking, as I did, who, who's the, the they? Who are these that brought this man who had been healed to Jesus? Well, if we look back up in verse 8, we find that after he's healed, he goes back, uh, after he's been washed, he comes back seeing, therefore his neighbors and those who had previously seen that he was blind said, is this not the man who sat uh, sat and begged? And so there's this conversation. How did it happen? And they're intrigued by it. You know, they say, well, he looks like him. Others say, well, it's not him, but... There's a controversy amongst them. So the, the they who brought him was, who was formerly blind to the Pharisees would be these neighbors. Now let's remember, some of you would not have heard of the sermon last week in the earlier parts of this chapter, but just remember, this man has been blind from birth. He came into the world unable to see. To him, the world is black. Uh, he has hearing and uh, sense of smell. He can touch the world around him, but he cannot see that world. That is there. And so this is the way he's lived his life. He's daily been seen in the community as one begging for alms, seeking to attain something to sustain him, to meet his most basic needs. And John tells us that after Jesus has left the temple, sometime after that, um, the time, as we notice, was unfixed, uh, Jesus passes by and Jesus sees him who cannot see Jesus then spat on the ground and he made a clay and he anointed the man's eyes with that clay and then he sent him to the pool called Scent to wash there and when he does so, he receives his sight. And oh, what a glorious moment that, man, that was for that man. Remember how uh, we recounted that not only did he suddenly see and, and he had to understand what all it meant and coordination changed, God uh, in his mercy completely healed the man. He, he transformed his brain, his ability, his whole function that seeing he could carry on in his life in the way that we're also accustomed to. No doubt he'd went with a great rejoicing. Those who would have known him would surely have been compelled to be caught up with him in that joy that overflowed from his heart, even as we're told to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. No doubt there was tremendous rejoicing. This was a great miracle. The same man will later say, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. 
So the man's neighbors, they're amazed, and no doubt they're puzzled. These well-meaning neighbors brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Why would they come? We're not told, but you know, it would be a natural thing. The Pharisees are the leading men in the community, and, and it may be that they might have some advice or some answers. It should also be noticed, it should have been safe for them to bring the man who was once blind and now can see. It should have been safe for them to bring him to the religious leaders. The interview begins, and right away the focus of the Pharisees is not on what happened. It goes right to when it took place. In the course of their examination, they discover that it was on the Sabbath. John, in verse 14, as we have it, um, he's providing explanation and information as he moves along through his gospel. We've seen that often. Uh, We might even think of this uh, being like a a parenthetical statement, not was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Uh, There's no discourse, there's no conversation, those inquiry. This is a fact we know, uh, and indeed the Pharisees discovered in the course of their examination. Well, once the Pharisees learned that it was on the Sabbath, the man's eyes being open miraculously is of no importance. It's, uh, it's like they're a dog on a new bone, and they seize hold of that, and they will not let it go. First of all, understand that Jesus did not break any of God's laws in healing this man on the Sabbath. For Jesus came to fulfill the law, and he did not set apart even a punctuation mark from the law. We hear the law every Lord's Day, including the fourth commandment. Uh, We uh, have been instructed by God that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus makes it clear that works of necessity and mercy are proper and appropriate on the Sabbath day. They're good and proper things that should be done. The Pharisees, they've taken this commandment of God to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, and they have had layer upon layer of other commandments, rules we'll call them. They're rules that have been added. And these rules were things that these men could keep, and they boasted that they did, and they would have the people to believe that they're righteous, whereas the people are not. This is the nature of unbelief in, in arrogance. So the unbelieving Pharisees, we will say, they twisted the law of God. They distorted it. They had added some 39 additional rules to the fourth commandment that went well beyond the the word of God. So when Jesus had healed this man, he violated at least three of the rules of the Pharisees, their regulations. First, he spat on the ground and made clay, which they considered to be manual labor. The Pharisees also, they in their, their rules, they permitted healing on the Sabbath, but note this, only if a life was in jeopardy. If someone was in danger of perishing, then, then you could act to, to help preserve their life and protect them. But let's say, for example, you sprained your ankle, and, and it would have benefited by, say, putting a uh, cold cloth on it. You couldn't do that on the Sabbath. You had to wait until the next day. Uh, you get a splinter in your eye. That has to wait till the next day because a life is not in jeopardy. That's the nature of these men's laws. So in their case, the way they saw it, Jesus healing a blind man should have waited until the next day. But also these religious leaders had went so far that they even had a rule that prohibited spitting on the Sabbath. So why did Jesus break these rules of men? Well, Jesus did not accept human rules being added to God's law because that was a blasphemous activity. 
You see, the God, God's law, as we heard in Romans 7, verse 12, some um, years ago now, God's law is holy and just and good. And it is right that we should keep it. But these men, for their own self-advancement, added rules. What we call man-made rules is legalism. That when you make up rules and you require other people to keep them or you want them to be impressed with your keeping of them, this is nothing other than pride and arrogance. Whereas God's law comes to us as sinners and humbles us. It exposes our sin. It exposes what we are. And it exposes our need for Christ. The law, first and foremost, is intended that we should see who we are before a holy God and that we need someone to redeem us. And indeed, that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's kept the law perfectly when no one else can. He has kept the law because he is the God-man. It is God the Son come in the flesh. And he came to keep the law for our sake. That when we are united to him by faith, that righteous record of Christ is put on our account. Well, the Pharisees wanted none of this. They were impressed with themselves, and they would contend with it. In our day, um, since we're talking about the Sabbath here, I just want to focus on it briefly. Um, One of the most common exemptions to the Westminster standards in our PCA presbyteries is to the Sabbath. Uh, Men take exception to the chapter on the fourth commandment where uh, worldly recreations are forbidden. I'm going to quote J.C. Ryle here, the Anglican faithful minister from an earlier century. He says, Our Lord never meant the Sabbath day to be a day of pleasure or a day of business or a day of idleness. It is one thing to employ the Sabbath in works of mercy, in ministering to the sick, and in doing good to the distressed. It is quite another thing to spend the day in self-indulgence by the Sabbath may be found out what sort of person we are. Are we in tune with heaven? By the Sabbath, in short, the secrets of the heart are revealed. Isaiah 58 will come to that some maybe a year from now as we're getting near to the end of Isaiah. Uh, we are told to call the Sabbath a delight. And I trust that if you walked with the Lord and by the grace of God have sought to keep the commandments, not to be accepted by God. No man can be accepted by God by keeping the laws. But as someone who has been accepted by God in Christ, uh, as you've sought to keep the Sabbath, you do find it a delight. That the Lord's day is good. It is refreshing and a blessed time and a time to um, sort of be reset. As I was speaking with someone this week, you know, we come together out of the world and we're often bruised and battered and we come together with God's people in our wounds are bound up and the the balm of Gilead even the Lord Jesus Christ is applied to us and our our focus is clarified and we remember what are the chief things and what it's all about and we are equipped then to go back out and to live as the lights of Christ in the world well these Pharisees they twisted God's law and more than anything they wanted to murder Jesus because in their mind he did not keep the Sabbath Now, surely we must understand the keeping of the Sabbath is what God requires. But they saw the keeping of the Sabbath was keeping their 39 rules about the Sabbath. And with their rules, as my uh, professor, Dr. Piper, explained this, as though they had built a fence around what the Sabbath was so that they could no longer enjoy the blessings of the Sabbath. They had twisted it and destroyed it. So when they asked about this man when he received his sight and they learned that it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made clay and put it on the man's eyes, they went off 
They blew up. They were livid. And we see their nature. And so what then happens in verse 16, it's remarkable how John in just a few words sets something pretty significant before us. He says, therefore some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division amongst them. Well, John presents their two arguments. Uh, The one group of the Pharisees says that all men who are from God keep the Sabbath. And since Jesus broke the Sabbath in their mind, breaking their rules, um, he can't be from God. That's their conclusion. Whereas others, they said, how can a man who is a sinner do these marvelous things? Their point is, sinners can't do God's work. And yet, the man, Jesus, had done a miracle, and so he couldn't be a sinner because sinners can't do that. So he must be from God. So there's a division. One group says he can't be from God. The others say he must be from God. And so they decide that they'll ask the man who was healed. And so in verse 17, they said, again, to the blind man, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, he is a prophet. It wasn't complicated for this man. He was able to understand that if this man, who he knew very little about, he knew his name was Jesus, that he, if he was able to do this, then he must be from God. Because he had healed him. Well, you see there when they asked uh, the man who was blind and now healed, uh, hoping to resolve their division, or at least that he might take a side with one group or the other, they didn't get what they were looking for. For he made a true declaration that Jesus was a prophet, a true prophet, and therefore to be a true prophet, he must be sent from God. God's design for the day then is to rest from work, school, and to focus on him, to come apart and join with God's people, for he is worthy of our worship. Come apart that we should lift up and to magnify the name of our God. In a great sense, we have a glimpse of eternity, for throughout eternity we will be in the presence of the Lord praising him. And consider that if if God is so glorious, which we cannot see uh, the infant infant nature of his glory, Uh, But just thinking about that all of eternity will be focused on glorifying him, surely that God would say, you have seven days. One of those is to be focused on my glory. And of course, when we come apart to worship God and to magnify his name, God blesses us and refreshes us. He's appointed that in our worship we have these means of grace. that He pours out grace upon grace without measure into our lives, and that we are refreshed and restored. This is the testimony of many of you in this congregation that I've spoken to you, that you come in, you're discouraged, you're downcast, and then you gather with the saints, and you start singing with the saints. You hear others singing the truths of God and his glory and his majesty, the wonders of Christ and what God has done, and your spirit is refreshed. We hear the preaching of the word, and we are blessed. Well, these Pharisees, they're unbelieving. And they twist the word. They twist the word of God to their own ends. We should all then, I'm application here, we should all ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts to see where we distort the truth of God's word. You know, that prayer, Lord, am I twisting your word to make myself comfortable? Am I twisting your word that I might use it to make others look worse than they are? If in that examination you find there's sin in your heart, more often than not we twist the word to make us comfortable in our sin. Or we might twist the word to amplify sin in others. These Pharisees were ready to 
killed Jesus because he exposed their error. And they condemned him for showing mercy on the Sabbath. One of the very intentions for the day. Well, not only that, their unbelief resulted in cold hearts. When you think about Mr. Brocklehurst uh, from Jane Eyre's story, you see something, the coldness of his heart with this young girl. He only speaks of hell and judgment and what can she do to escape? He doesn't tell her of Christ and his mercy and the hope of sinners. It's not on his lips. Those of you who know the story. Well, it's at this point that it should be very obvious to any who are paying attention that these men, these Pharisees, have very cold hearts. There's no compassion bound to be within them. You can search throughout the whole of the ninth chapter and look at these men, these Pharisees, and how they behave themselves. Never once is there any compassion. They never rejoice. They never show any wonder in their hearts that this mighty miracle, this man born blind, can now see. And is he right? He says, since the beginning of time, this has never been done. And they are aloof from it all. They're removed from it all. They're so busy exalting themselves that for one moment they cannot imagine that they would stop and give God the glory. Such is the coldness of heart in a heart of unbelief. Unbelief flows through their veins like Freon. Notice that these religious men are not even so, not even one little bit concerned about the man. In their mind, he's just a pawn to be played with, to advance themselves, to advance their cause, their agenda. And they press him with hard questions, and they're even asked from stony faces. This man has received what we would say would probably be the second greatest gift he could possibly receive. The first being new life in Christ. To have his eyes, physical eyes open. Is, is a picture of the work of God in our hearts by the Holy Spirit when he renews us in Christ. And they don't care. These men just don't care. You know, there's the scriptural injunction to us that we would rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Sometimes that's hard to do. But indeed, it is what we're called to do. As Christians and new creatures in Christ, we will often find the greatest opposition to us, our greatest discouragement will come from religious legalists who do not know the Lord. Notice these Pharisees. Throughout the whole of the count of the Gospels, they never have any awe for the mighty works of God. Indeed, the Gospel accounts, if you read through the forum, there are multitudes of miracles. Yes, there's the recounting of some of the same miracles. But remember, John, at the end of this Gospel, he said that if all of those mighty works that Christ had done, he said, I'm not sure that the whole of the world could contain the record thereof. These Pharisees have no sense of awe. They're like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. A brother who was wayward, had gone off. For all the family knew he was dead, he's come home. The father's rejoicing. He's thrown a party. There's great celebration. He's called in the neighbors. But this older brother, he has no joy. Indeed, what we find as Jesus tells the parable, that older brother is bitter. He despises the whole matter of what his father is doing. And, of course, Jesus told that parable about the Pharisees. Well, the divided Pharisees, they're still desperate, seeking some way 
not only that one group or the other should be exonerated, but more than anything, that Christ would be discredited in the eyes of the people. They, they hope to prove that this man is a liar. Did you catch that in verse 18? But the Jews did not believe him concerning that he had been blind and received his sight. They don't believe the testimony of this man. And no doubt it was compellingly given. You know, imagine you've been blind all your life and now you can see. You wouldn't say, well, yeah, I was blind and now I can see now. It would have been a compelling testimony. Uh, The joy, the wonder would have lingered in that man's heart for, I would think, for perhaps the rest of his life. How could it become ordinary when he's lived to that point without sight? And so it is that they want to discredit Jesus. They tried over the Sabbath. The man says he's a prophet, so they pressed further. They don't believe his testimony until they called his parents of him who had received his sight. Now, understand, they're calling his parents because they want them to say, no, he, he's just a, he's a prankster, you know. He, he pulls stunts like this. He makes up these stories, and this is just another one of those stories. They're hoping that they'll find something like that because they despise Christ, and they have such cold hearts to the things of God. Well, they call the parents, and with the same coldness, they cross-examine them. Look at verse 19. And they ask them, saying, is this your son? who you say was blind, how then does he now see? Not very pastoral, is it? These are men to be the pastors of the people of God in that era, and there's not a pastoral bone in their bodies. There's just cold unbelief. Well, in verse 20, we hear the parents. They're prepared to testify to a point. Do you notice that? Look at verse 20. His parents answered them, and they said, We know this is our son, and that he was born blind. Those two things, they're willing to bear witness. There's two witnesses. They're both saying the same thing. This is a credible testimony. Two witnesses verifying, this is our son. We know he was born blind. But then they stop. Verse 21, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. Commentators are of different opinions as to whether the parents had already heard the story. It's very likely from the way this is told that this is not on the Sabbath day that this has happened. Because even for the Pharisees, they had rules about doing judicial matters on, uh, on the Sabbath. And so this is likely the next day or a day later. And you can only imagine that who would that young man, or how old his age, who would he want to know first? Who was that one that he was most eager to tell that his eyes had been opened? It would have surely been his parents. That as soon as he could have got to them, as soon as he could have discovered them, he would have told them that they would rejoice with him. And indeed, how great would be their rejoicing. But now that they're, they're before the Pharisees for their grand inquisition, they're very short in their answers. We know that this is our son. We know he was born blind. Full stop. The rest of it, we don't know anything about. They're not prepared to testify about anything else. And think about that for a moment. These parents, they love their son. It's very natural for parents to love their son. Think about it. They have seen him suffer through life. You know, as he's born and you know, he's learning to walk and all the things that children do would have been complicated by the fact that he's blind. 
And they would have suffered with him as he suffered, seeking to do all they could for him, helping him to find a way to live in the world, passing through the streets and recounting again and again that you go this many steps and it'll be this corner and then you return left and you go there to help them to learn the city that in his mind that he can imagine what he cannot see and be able to make his way around at least to get to the place where he could go and beg and so forth. He seems to have known the way to the pool that Jesus sent to him, that he was able to stumble along to get to it. So this, these parents would have been involved in all that. And now he is healed. He can see the wonder of that miracle that he can see. Think about their joy. But now the local pastors of the synagogue have put their son on trial for what? For getting healed. They want to persecute him and they even want to drag the parents into it for something great that Jesus has done. And so now that they've been put on the stand, so to speak, and they're asked questions that are driving to a point, they, they are just pawns in the hands of the Pharisees who seek to defend their position. And it is well known that these men are prepared to excommunicate, that is to put out of the synagogue. It's, you know, you, I actually read the minutes from an old church in Tennessee when I was visiting one of Donna's aunts, and, and the way they spoke of it, you know, so-and-so was heard to be drunk, and the elders went and visited, and they churched her. You know, we would say excommunicated. They put her out. And the word here is synagogued. And there's a, taking the word synagogue and it's modified as desynagogued. That's what they are eager to do. And these parents would have heard that. Anybody that would confess that Jesus is the Christ is going to be put out of the synagogue. And so they only go so far and then they stop. They're not willing to answer the question or even to suggest how it is that their son can now see that his eyes are open. These bullied parents refuse to give glory to God because of fear of man. That's a temptation for us all, isn't it? You know, fear of man will compel us to do some pretty naughty things at times. Remember that, young people. Remember that, children. You know, when you're with others who want to do bad things, you can be afraid of being put out of the group or mocked or belittled. And it's eager to just to go along, to get along, to get on board. So what did they say? They say, let him speak for himself. He's old enough. There's some application. Well, can, we, uh, can we use what we see here to examine our own hearts? Particularly in the matter of cold hearts of unbelief. A cold heart of unbelief is prepared to use people as tools to prop up our false religion. People are viewed as nothing more than pawns to be used to get something that we want. But remember this, every man and woman, boy and girl, is an image bearer of God Almighty. They're not there to be used, to be manipulated. Do you have a hard time rejoicing with others? Do you celebrate the advance of a co-worker when they got the promotion that you wanted? Or do you murmur and grumble? Do you seek to tear others down to make yourself look better? Let me probe a little further. How do we respond to the homosexual? What's our response to them? Does the love of Christ compel us to embrace them and compel us to tell them of the good news that is in Christ? What about the ones with AIDS? Do we push them away? Or do we grieve with them and their suffering? Do we extend care and compassion? Are we happy that, well, their sins have brought justice down on their own heads? My friends, we should have but one agenda, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That starts here and now by showing compassion to our fellow man 
in his circumstances. We are all marred and disfigured, harassed and laid low by sin. That is the common lot of all men. We don't want to use others. And there's no way that we can belittle others to gain favor with God. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. There's nothing that we can do to impress God. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we become new creatures and the old ways are gone. We, we have become new. We start thinking and speaking and acting like Jesus as the Holy Spirit enables us to. As we were just reminded earlier in the homily on the law, it's not just our outward actions, it's the inward heart that Jesus focuses on. And so we start thinking and acting like Christ as the Holy Spirit works in us and enables us to do. The first and, great, first and second great commandments become our way of living. Why? Because we're crucified with Christ. That's a death. Nevertheless, we live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that we now live, we live by faith of the Son of God, faith in the Son of God. Remember verse 5. Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He is our light. He lights the path before us so that we should love as he loved, as he equips us, that we should do unto good to all men. Well, thirdly, not only does unbelief twist the word of God, not only is it filled with cold-heartedness, but it's also unwilling to change. The cold heart of a hard heart is a heart of stone, unyielding, fixed in its rebellion. In verse 18, we're told that the Jews did not believe concerning him. They refused to believe. And yet, they've received this remarkable testimony. This, man, this man's parents said, this is our son. And yes, he was born blind. And there he is before them seeing. That's a powerful testimony and yet they are t- continued to press on in the determination to defend themselves and to destroy Jesus how much more evidence do they need indeed how much more they need they knew they knew that a miracle had really occurred it's not it's not reasonable that they could deny it when the parents testify this is our son he was born blind and there he is he can see there's all the evidence in the world that they needed to know something remarkable to happen, and yet they continue to reject Jesus. They're unwilling. Why do sinners still reject Jesus today? As his word is preached, as he is preached and proclaimed from faithful pulpits, Christ is set before the eyes of men. And there's all the evidence that testifies that he is the son of the God who the Father sent into the world to save sinners. And Jesus calls men to come unto him that they would be saved. Indeed. The son of the living God came into the world to save sinners. But these Pharisees, they build a religious house. And they want God to accept them on their terms, on their self-made religion. They want God to affirm them in who they are and what they are and all their rules. That's what they would have the people to believe and they want God to accept it as well. Unbelief renders the sinner unwilling to humble himself or herself in the sight of God. That's a terrifying thing. Unbelief renders us unwilling and indeed unable to turn to the living God. The plain truth of the matter is we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. But Jesus came into the world to save such sinners. God's wrath abides on sinners. He will by no means acquit the guilty, the scripture says. 
What do we do? If God will not acquit the guilty, what are we to do? My friends, that's the good news of the gospel. By faith alone, you're united to Christ and all his benefits, all the blessings that he secured in his obedient living, in his, his substitutionary death, in his resurrection, all the benefits of Christ become yours. And that includes your guilt has been placed on another. And the wrath of God has been spent on Christ. So that if you're in Christ, you're not guilty. So God will by no means acquit the guilty. But if you're in Christ, you have been forgiven. And your sins are washed away. And so the God is both just and the justifier. Because of the completed work of his son. This is very important to understand this. Remember what uh, young Jane Eyre expressed that she wanted to stay healthy and live forever. Well, the reality is it's appointed that a man wants to die, and then there's a judgment. We cannot stay healthy, and we cannot avoid death. And apart from Jesus Christ, then indeed hell will be your lasting home. Maybe your religion has been that of self-righteousness, and you have a list, a self-created list of do's and don'ts, and you find yourself impressed with yourself on just how well you keep those lists. But I ask you a question. I don't remember if it was R.C. Sproul, but some like of that, of that caterpillar, who would debate others. He said, after the debate, he would ask him, what do you do about your guilt? Atheists, men who have denied that God is, that there's judgment, that there's wrath, that there's sin, that there's a hereafter, all this, they, they believe. But you see, his question gets to the reality. We have guilt. You can... Uh, create this whole system that says there is no God, but still there you are as an image bearer who is a sinner. And you have guilt. What do you do about your guilt? And that's the good news of the gospel is you can go to Christ and he removes your guilt because he has satisfied God by his obedience and his death, paying the penalty for your sins. These Pharisees thrash around and thrash and thrash out against others because they're guilty. And the very one who God sent into the world to save them, they rejected him. They were determined to crucify him. They wanted him dead. That's no different today with many today that are still in unbelief. But consider this. Jesus came to rescue the self-righteous. Jesus came to save sinners. There's no uh, footnote At the bottom of the page, it says, except those sinners, this, 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 and this. He came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to even save sinners like these men, where they're coldness and hardness, because, my friends, in sin, that is what we are. We have cold, hard, dead, unbelieving hearts, and God alone is able to save. And so Jesus says, come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden. It's that weight of your self-righteousness, the weight of your guilt and the guilty conscience. That is a tremendous burden. To carry. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the Savior that the prophet speaks of. I think it's Isaiah. He would not break a bruised reed nor snuff out a smoking flax. He's a tender Savior. 
what we see in these Pharisees, Jesus is more than the opposite of those. He, he's, he, there's no way to compare them to him. He is exceedingly great and marvelous. He is God himself come in the flesh. He humbled himself to come into the world that he could save sinners as we are. And he's still doing that. He calls sinners bound in unbelief to come to him. Come just as you are. He will not cast you away. Come with simple childlike faith. That is it. Come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. All the benefits that are in Christ are found when you come. Well, we want to consider, finally, belief under fire more briefly. We focused on the Pharisees and their unbelief. That's much what's in this text. But there's another person in this text. We've talked about him. It's that man who was formerly blind. We'll look at him more fully as we move on and finish this chapter. But just a couple of things right now. First, we can learn from him that we, when we answer Jesus' call to come to him for salvation, we must know, we must understand, there will be conflict with the world. The unbelieving world will persecute us. Jesus said, they did it to me. And if you belong to me, you can expect to be treated like your master. Those who follow Jesus will be persecuted. Don't be surprised. Secondly, we know that God's grace will sustain us in the trials that we face. That's what explains the composure of this blind man in this account. It's remarkable to see how composed he is. He doesn't tremble. He doesn't wander away. God strengthens and upholds him. Uh, the, the promise that was given to the, the disciples that after he was ascended to the right hand of the Father, when the persecution he gave them, do not be concerned about what you will say because the Holy Spirit who fills you will equip you what to say. But you see that at work even in this man who's very young in the faith. He knows very little, but he's composed in grace by the strength of God. Third, we see that such tests and trials are used by God to grow our faith and strengthen us in the Lord and expand our knowledge. Throughout the ninth chapter, you will see that this man who was formerly blind, he grows in his understanding. The first thing he says is, a man called Jesus healed me. Then we've heard today that he testifies he's a prophet. He's one who speaks and follows God. That is the prophet, Jesus the prophet. He's the one who speaks and acts for God. And later in the chapter, we'll see that this same man understands that Jesus is the one sent from God. And he will confess that he's the son of man and his Lord. And fourthly from this man, we see his witness grow. What does he do? This was his experience. He bears witness to what happened. And he sticks to the fact. He bears witness to what God has done. He makes his words count. He becomes more bold and courageous as it moves along, even knowing that to confess Jesus as the Christ could get him excommunicated. His parents knew it. Surely he knew it. And yet he bears witness. Well, finally, a simple observation of application and conclusion. My friends, followers of Christ, do not whimper and whine when the world bullies you and harasses you and persecutes you. For God works in these things. It's when our faith is under fire that we grow in Christ. The, the fire, as the one song says, was uh, the Lord speaking, was only designed to consume the dross that is within us. God is at work that we would be more and more like Christ, consuming the dross that we become refined gold. And the Lord uses us then to bear witness to a dying world of a living Savior. Amen.
Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do marvel at the lessons that are in your word. We thank you for this account that happened so long ago, and yet it bears witness to the majesty of Christ, but also to the hatred of evil men. Father, uh, let us, even by your spirit, take stock of who we are and consider if any of these uh, attributes of unbelief are within us. Perhaps, Lord, there are those here who can identify with the Pharisees and recognize they have a heart of stone. O living God who saves sinners, would you stoop to save them and give them a heart of flesh and lips to cry out with faith, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord, we thank you for showing us mercy in your Son and that you abide with us even to the end of the age. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.